You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's very good to see many familiar faces who I haven't seen in a while. It's great to be back together and uh, in more full uh, numbers. Today we return to part two of the unpleasant topic of abuse. And I think this is a worthy topic to discuss here in church on a Sunday morning, not only because there's a problem in our society and in churches with abuse, but also because I've been wonderfully surprised at how clearly the Bible speaks to this issue. It typically uses terms like oppression or oppressed when speaking of abuse. But the Bible is by no means silent, outdated, or irrelevant when it comes to this dreadful, confusing, and exhausting human experience. Rather, it's a hope-filled, hope-giving, down-to-earth, and helpful book when it comes to these matters. Last week, we saw that Saul and David's relationship serves as a biblical example of the dynamics of abuse. And while I cannot exhaust this topic in two weeks, nor do I claim to be an, uh, an expert in abuse, I've seen its evil face up close and personal, as some of you have as well. And my hope for these talks was to get us thinking about this as a church so that if one of our fellow church members gives us a call and we suspect that abuse is happening in their life, we can at least have a biblical category to think about these things while we start to help them. Statistics tell us that one in four women in intimate relationships are suffering from a form of abuse. And these statistics, as we saw last week, don't change inside the church. But this is not the only way and context where abuse takes place. Nor is it always the case that women are being abused in these intimate relationships. Sometimes it's the husband in an intimate relationship who is being abused. This is more rare, but it does happen. And sometimes abuse takes place in non-intimate relationships. Sometimes it's neighbors, family members, teachers, or even coaches that are abusing us. Abuse traffics in deception. So usually the, the abuser is the last person we'd suspect. Which means often it's much harder to detect than the example of David and Saul in Scripture. But again, David and Saul serve as a helpful example of the dynamics of abuse. But when we're talking about abuse, it's important to remember that not all abuse is the same. Darby Strickland, in her helpful book called Is It Abuse, breaks abusive relationships into five categories. Now, these I found very helpful. She says there is emotional abuse, financial abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse. Abuse is happening in our neighborhoods and in our churches today often behind closed doors and secrecy, but it is happening. And the church would do well to speak up and expose these deeds of darkness with the light of Christ and his word. 
But as we look at this episode of David's life, which is a prolonged period of time that spans in 1 Samuel 16 all the way to 31, uh, we're going to just try to, for a second, put the categories that Darby Strickland gives us in her book, uh, put those with the, the scripture and that episode in Saul and David's life, I think we'll see that Saul is actually guilty of both physical and emotional abuse. He's abusing David. Here's the definitions of emotional abuse and then uh, physical abuse from Darby Strickland. Listen to this. Emotional abuse is a pattern of behavior that promotes a destructive sense of fear, obligation, shame, or guilt. It may take the form of neglecting, frightening, isolating, belittling, exploiting, blaming, shaming, or threatening a victim, as well as playing mind games or lying. For example, consistently disregarding, ignoring, or neglecting a victim and their needs, telling a victim that they are mentally unstable or incompetent, isolating a victim from their family and community. Emotional abuse can also be referred to as verbal and mental abuse. Okay? Does that sound, if, you're to, if you've read that uh, 1 Samuel 16 to 31, does that sound like Saul in any way? Does this sound like someone you know in any way? Or does this sound like you? Darby Strickland also defines physical abuse for us, and I want to read this definition as well. She says, physical abuse is the intentional or reckless use of physical force that may result in bodily injury or physical pain. Physical abuse does not need to cause pain or leave a bruise. It also includes actions that lead to harm, such as preventing a victim from sleeping or refusing them medical care. Physically abusive actions range from throwing things all the way to choking or beating. For example, kicking, biting, scratching, or pulling hair, throwing objects, destroying property, or withholding needed medication. If Saul was alive today, do you think this description would fit him? You see, he literally threw spears at David, remember? <laughs> I think it fits him. Now, this is scary behavior, isn't it? Yet what's equally scary is that each of our sinful hearts are capable of such sinister and maniacal deeds. Darby Strickland says that oppressors or abusers live with a pattern of entitlement that typically exhibits six key beliefs. Listen to these. It's all about me is the first belief. Number two, you and I, you and I need to listen only to me. Wow. Number three, rules are not for me to follow. They are to keep me happy. Number four, my anger is justified. Number five, other people attack me. Number six, I don't have to appreciate what you do, but I demand that you appreciate what I do. Sound familiar? Abuse is blatantly breaking the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with everything and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Blatant disregard for that commandment. And it's a pattern of coercive and controlling behavior often used by a person with a power advantage, a leverage over another. In this case, going back to our example in Saul and David, Saul is the king of Israel in this period of David's life. 
he has the most power in that community at that time. And I think Saul fits the description of an abuser to a T. And I think David also serves an example of this period of his life of a victim who is rescued by God's gracious intervention. Now, if you're in an abusive relationship where any of these things is happening to you, it may be hard for you to think clearly right now. But what is happening to you is evil. It is wrong. It is sin. This behavior is not loving. The person doing this to you is harming you, even if they say they love you after the fact. And even if you're married and this person says they love Jesus and they come to church, this kind of behavior is betrayal and sin. It's unloving. The person that is doing this needs to repent. And if they blame their upbringing, the stresses in their life, or they blame it on the alcohol, understand this. They are responsible before God to repent of their evil doing. Now, if you're a lady and you're in an abusive relationship, I just want to say there is an organization called Violence Against Women, and they have a comprehensive list of resources to help you. Just wanted to put that up on the screen for you. The website is here. Take a look around. It's not a Christian organization, but if you're in a crisis right now, they can help you. Remember, God uses people. He uses means to meet his ends. And if you need to talk after the service about any of these matters, please come talk with me. And if I can't help, I'll do my best to get you the help you need. Now, for today, we're looking at Psalm 34. So please turn with me there, and we're going to meet with David in his dire straits. The setting of Psalm 34 comes in that one sentence before verse 1, where you see it, it says this, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. This is the context of this beautiful psalm, which we're going to sing at the end of the service, by the way. So get your heart ready. This is the setting. Uh, it's in 1 Samuel 21. It's just a few verses. It's 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. This is what's happening in David's life um, that he's recalling in this 34th psalm. He says this. It says this in 1 Samuel 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul. He's on the run. And went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing of, uh, to one another of him in, in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and listen here, and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath, who are verse 34, uh, before 34 says is Abimelech, okay? Same person. So he changed his behavior. Look at verse 13. So he changed his behavior. He's full of fear. He changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madman that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, David is stuck in his enemy's camp. Remember? The Philistines. This is not long after he had just slayed Goliath, cut his head off. 
He's now in the Philistines' camp with nowhere to run or hide. We talked about this last week. David's in double trouble. He's on the run from Saul, and he's caught in his enemy's camp. But what we didn't cover last week is that David did something quite unusual in this episode of his life. What did David do? Well, you saw it there. David pretended to be crazy. Is that interesting? In his fear, he started acting like a madman. He literally started slobbering all over his beard and scratched marks on the gates of the city. Is that odd behavior? <laughs> Come on, it is. He couldn't run and hide from the Philistines anymore, so he resorted to a very strange tactic to counter their attack, and what he did was he frustrated their plans of attack. And in God's providence, David's play-acting brought about his narrow escape. Interesting. Now, commentators are divided on whether or not this was appropriate, an appropriate thing for David to do. Some think it was a sinful scheme to counter the attacks of his abusers. Some think it was a display of godly wit, or like I like to say, sanctified street smarts. Now, while scripture does not tell us exactly how to interpret this odd episode, I do find it interesting that in the context of persecution, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, let's not be dogmatic about things scripture isn't clear on. Regardless of your take on David's actions, it's clear that he was filled with fear at this part of his life. He didn't see a way out, so he pretended to be crazy, which brought him out of harm's way. And if it was a sinful response to his situation, God in his providence even used these sinful actions to play a part in his deliverance from his attackers. And frankly, this is always the case, isn't it? Even in our best moments, our hearts are never free from sin, right? Even Christians still have the remnants of sin in our hearts, even when we're doing the best things possible, maybe serving others, loving others, singing in church. Ever had mixed motives? Yeah, me too. I think this is important to remember and keep in mind, um, when we consider those in abusive relationships. Because it's, it's very basic to remember that both the victim and the abusers are sinners. Right? David and Saul were both sinners. But hear me, in these situations, we also recognize that one is in more danger than the other. One is more vulnerable than the other. And even in the Bible, we see that not all sin is the same in God's sight. James says those who teach the word will be judged with greater strictness. The Bible distinguishes between the unpardonable sin and the sin against the body. It also distinguishes between unintentional sins and high-handed sins. My opinion is that the high-handed defiant sins of scripture abuse would land in that category in that category 
But again, it's my opinion. I think abuse lands in there, though. While we recognize that Scripture says all have sinned and sin is lawlessness, we also recognize that there are degrees of severity and punishment associated with different kinds of sins. So when we're talking about abuse, we're not talking about something on the same level as stealing a pack of gum, though that too is sin, right? In abusive situations, we're seeking to protect the vulnerable, bring them to safety, lead the abuser to repentance, even though the victim is a sinner as well. And likely in the dynamics of that relationship is sinning to some degree. But we prioritize their protection because we recognize the severity of the danger that they're in. Now Psalm 34 is David's song of thanks to God who delivered him from the danger that he was in and the desperate times of this episode in his life. So we are, I promise, going to go to Psalm 34. But first, let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize this is such a weighty matter. Pray that you would help me to be sensitive, gentle, truthful. And I pray that your word would come through most clearly. In Jesus' name. So today we'll see in Psalm 34 that believers who have experienced God's deliverance in desperate times, like David, want to praise him. Believers who have experienced God's deliverance in desperate times want to praise him. Now, we've heard the setting of this psalm already. And while the circumstances of it are rather odd... Abusive situations are rarely straightforward. Again, this psalm and setting serves as a prayer for those who have been oppressed or are being oppressed. So David begins where we left off last week in Psalm 56 with his vow and thank offering to the Lord. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David has just come out of a close call. And he is focused on setting his heart, setting his lips, and, never, uh, and he's resolved to never stop blessing or praising the Lord. His mouth will be full of God's praise because his heart is full of God's presence. The ESV study Bible says uh, about blessing the Lord this. It's a it's quite helpful word. The idea behind bless is to speak a, a good word about someone. When God blesses someone, he speaks a good word over that person for his well-being. When a human blesses God, he speaks a good word about God's kindness and generosity. Let's see how he does this in verses 2 to 3. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Here's a sneak peek at a godly person's motives. What makes him tick? His soul makes its boast in the Lord. He's fixed, not on making a name for himself, but about magnifying, about talking up the Lord and promoting his name. And he appeals to the humble to hear and make their hearts happy in the name of the Lord. 
together. Now, why would he appeal to the humble? Well, perhaps because proud people would rather boast of themselves. Perhaps. And humble people, perhaps, would rather talk of their God. Spurgeon says, the confident expressions of tried believers are a rich solace to their brethren of less experience. We ought to talk of the Lord's goodness on purpose that others may be confirmed in their trust in a faithful God. Is this the habit in your life? Monitor your mouth for the next week. Do you promote the Lord much? Or are your words set on self-promotion? The next thing we see in this text is that believers who have experienced God's deliverance in desperate times will testify about him. They will testify about him. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David is recalling being afraid and on the run from Saul. We know the setting well. And this helps us to understand the mindset of someone who is being or has been abused. They are fearful, hypervigilant, and David knows this experience very well. And David says, in those moments, I sought the Lord. And then he listened to me. He answered me, and he even rescued me from all my fears. It's testimony time. And David's speaking up of how the Lord met him in that terrible, troubling place. I think we could be instructed to do the same as we consider the situations we're in. Are we seeking the Lord right now? If so, there is much profit, friend, in doing this. Look at verse 5. For the benefits of seeking the Lord, even in our trouble. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. We who look to the Lord in our times of trouble are radiant, Scripture says. An interesting word. The idea is that we are beaming, being enlightened. Our very faces shine, as it were. Since the Lord of light shines his face on us, we in some way reflect his brightness, his beauty, his radiance. We'll not be ashamed. We don't need to hang our head. We call on the Lord and we'll be radiant. Spurgeon says, what a means of blessing one look at the Lord may be. There is life, light, liberty, love, everything in fact, in a look at the crucified one. Never did a sore heart look in vain to the good physician. Wow. Now just so we're clear, don't be upset if you look in the mirror and you don't see yourself glowing. We're not right now talking literally about our skin glowing, okay? But we are being enlightened, renewed, revived in the Lord, reflecting him. Next, David testifies, saying, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Here David is speaking for himself about how the Lord, the covenant Lord, heard him and saved him. When he was overcome by his troubles. 
And what was the key? He cried to the Lord. Prayer was key. And prayer is key to the mysterious ways God works in the world. Isn't it? The living God who holds the whole world in his hands can, does, and will, at will, change things in the world through prayer. It is not a waste of time. It actually changes things. God actually answers and moves and comes near and delivers and rescues and, and, and. He works. Spurgeon says, at once and altogether, David was clean rid of all his woes. The Lord sweeps our griefs away as men destroy a hive of hornets. Or as the winds clear away the mists. Prayer can clear us of troubles as easily as the Lord made a riddance of the, of the frogs and flies of Egypt when Moses entreated him. Wow. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now here's a reference to the angel of the Lord who is the invisible presence camping around his oppressed people. Here's, here he's uh, there delivering them from the visible evils of enemies such as abusers, oppressors. Attackers, And he's also working to deliver us from the invisible evils that are at work behind the schemes of such abusers. He's at work in the spiritual realm, protecting his people from the satanic schemes in the heavenly realms. He's also the object of his people's fear or worship. So who are we referring to here? I think this is one of those places in scripture where uh, scripture is speaking of the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord himself. This is a reference, I believe, to the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who is the mediator between God and man, the Redeemer. He is and has been working to deliver his people from evil. And he's still at work. More on this in the next few verses as we see believers who have experienced God's deliverance in desperate times want others to enjoy his goodness. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This has got to be one of the sweetest verses in the Bible. It appeals to our senses with the goodness of the Lord. It's also showing us the way to sift through hypocrites and legitimate believers. The hypocrite hasn't had his taste buds for God changed yet. We could say the goodness of the Lord is an acquired taste. But it's not like kale. <laughs> it's sweet. It's good. There's nothing wrong or bad about it. It's health-giving. The hypocrite hasn't had their taste buds for God changed yet. So dwelling too long on the goodness of God leaves them with a rather bitter taste. But for the true believer, the goodness of God is a most welcome theme to meditate on, isn't it? He lives, he or she lives to tell and hear of the Lord's goodness. 
It's kind of like their gravitational center. They just keep going back to it. Loving this theme of the goodness of the Lord. And I think it's a good test for your salvation here, friend. To ask yourself, have you tasted and seen that God is good? Have you acquired the taste for the goodness of God? If so, you will have fled to him for refuge. You will have come to him for salvation. It says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now this psalm talks of salvation, being rescued, deliverance. And we've seen that the setting is referring to salvation or deliverance from David's oppressors, his attackers. But the salvation this psalm was written to point to is the salvation that Jesus offers. The salvation that God brings from our physical oppressors is a picture of the greater salvation that God brings from our greatest spiritual oppressors. The world, the flesh, and the devil that are set against us, scheming, conspiring to do us ill. And only through the Lord Jesus Christ will any of us escape these demonic, oppressive, abusive schemes that we cannot see. His person, his death, and resurrection is the only place for us to find ultimate rescue and refuge from all our enemies, unseen and seen. So let me ask you, have you fled to Christ for life? Have you tasted and seen that he's good? If you have, keep tasting and keep seeing God's goodness in his word in your life every day. Don't get sick of this theme, friend. It'll keep your spiritual vitality. He is infinitely good. We could go on and on and on forever and ever about his goodness. There's no end of his goodness. This theme is a never-ending feast, I believe, for the believer. And it supplies spiritual nutrition for our spiritual growth. As 1 Peter 2, verse 2 to 3 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do not tire of this, believer. As Charles Spurgeon said, you can only know this really and personally by experience. Faith is the soul's taste. They who test the Lord by their confidence always find him good. And they become themselves blessed. Make a trial, an inward experimental trial of the goodness of God. You cannot see except by tasting for yourself. But if you taste, you shall see, for this, like Jonathan's honey, enlightens the eyes. What an illustration. And he goes on, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Oh, what a benefit there is to fear the Lord. David's now appealing to believers, the saints of God, to fear the Lord. Because the Lord is both good and generous. He provides for and protects his people. Though we may not have all the things our greedy hearts want, we will have all that we need as believers. We will. 
You will. Even young lions who are the king of the jungle, even they go hungry at times. But those who seek the Lord don't lack anything. Nothing that is worthy of the name good will be held back from us who seek the Lord. Be it spiritual blessings, earthly necessities, or rescue from evildoers. God is the author of good, and he sees to it that those who seek him will lack no good thing. Bank on it. What a promise. Now we've seen this term, the fear of the Lord, a couple times. And its presence in this psalm is fitting. It fits well, especially because David is recalling an episode in his life where he was completely afraid, full of fear. But the fear he felt from his attackers and the fear of the Lord that he's promoting are quite different. David had a dreadful fear of his abusers because they were violent men who were dangerous and were coming to kill him. (laughs) But what he's persuading God's people to hear is different than that. Rather than a dreading, running from, and hiding from fear, uh, uh, hiding from uh, from God fear, he's urging them to run to and find their safety and protection in the good God who rescues us from such fears. He's calling the people to love the God who loves them. Cling to the God who calls them. Michael Reeves has uh, written a book on the fear of the Lord. He says this, The fear of the Lord is to be more alive. It is for our love, joy, wonder, and worship of God to be more acute and affecting. Do you fear the Lord? Perhaps the best way to know is to find out if you love the Lord Jesus and if your sins have been forgiven through faith in him. I say that because of what Spurgeon said. When a man really receives the pardon of all his sins, he is the man who fears the Lord. This is clearly the case. For pardon breeds love in the soul, and the more a man is forgiven, the more he loves. Where great sin has been blotted out, there comes to be great love. Well, is not love the very core of the true fear of God? Uh, It seems very hard to get a textbook definition for the fear of the Lord, but what you're getting here is that this relationship we have with the Lord, fear and love intertwined, so very connected to the Lord himself. We love, we revere, we stand in awe of the Lord who is God. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack The next thing we see in this text is that believers who have experienced God's deliverance in desperate times will instruct others in wisdom. Look at verses 11 through 14. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. These verses teach us that the good life is living in harmony with the good God. To enjoy relational closeness with the triune God is life, joy, peace, 
These verses are instructions of wisdom reminiscent of Proverbs. Here David is the godly leader instructing God's people to fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And this instruction comes out of David's personal experience with the Lord. He says, if we want to see good, listen to to him, fear the Lord, and keep your tongue from speaking evil. Turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Here is the... Uh, Here we see that godliness is a character quality that proves itself in patterns of living and speaking. Scripture has lots to say about evil patterns uh, 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 of living, including motives, behaviors, and speaking. But let's just consider the pattern of our words for a moment. Because speaking evil and deceitful words to people has a major impact on them, doesn't it? Words can be abusive. Wicked, careless words, lies, gossip, and devious speech can cut deeper and hurt us longer than anything else, it seems. And God's people aren't to speak that way to one another. We're marked by a different kind of speech, aren't we? We're to speak the truth in love. We're to be constructive with our words, building up, not destructive, tearing down. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about verse 13. Guard with careful diligence that dangerous member, the tongue, lest it utter evil, for that evil will recoil upon thee and mar the enjoyment of thy life. Men cannot spit forth poison without feeling some of the venom burning their own flesh. Lying and wicked talk stuffs our pillow with thorns and makes life a constant whirl of fear and shame. Does your mouth get you into trouble? Do you abuse people with your words? If so, repent before God. Come clean. Scripture says the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Don't blame your upbringing or your circumstances for your sin. If you're in a pattern of hurting people with your words, that pattern needs to change. If you claim to follow Jesus, you need to take responsibility for your own sin. You're sinning with your mouth because you're sinning with your heart. Confess your heart's sin to God. And turn from evil and do good, seek peace, and pursue it. The last thing we see in this text is that believers who have experienced God's deliverance in desperate times will tell of the benefits of righteous living. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. 
Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This psalm ends with motivations for righteous living. It keeps with the previous verses in contrasting the way of the righteous with the ways of the wicked. Very much, again, reminiscent of Proverbs. For those who live by faith in the true God, his eyes are wrapped upon them. For those, uh, for those who uh, live by faith in the true God, his ears listen to their cries. He helps. He comes close to save those who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. They will suffer in this life, yes. But the Lord will deliver them from final evil and none of his servants who take refuge in him will be condemned. They will not be punished by God. In verse 22, we see the foundations, I believe, for Paul's words in Romans 8.1. Verse we love around here. Now, uh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We who follow, believe, trust, walk by faith in the Lord will not be condemned. But on the flip side of such promises, these verses also tell us that evildoers have the Lord's face set against them. Which is scripture's way of saying God's displeasure, his wrath is against evildoers. David has his oppressive enemies in mind here. And we may say, given the context, that those who are sinning with a high hand, such as David's abusers, are living under the displeasure of God. Towards them, God is far from apathetic or indifferent. As Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Spurgeon says he is determinately resolved that the godly shall not prosper. He sets himself with all his might to overthrow them. He will stamp out their fires. Their honor shall be turned into, into shame. Their names forgotten or accursed. Utter destruction shall be the lot of all the ungodly. You want to live for Jesus? You want to live righteously? many motivations here for those who are trusting in the lord and may be suffering through some form of oppression or abuse find verses 17 through 18 this promise that finds its yes and amen in jesus he hears us and he is near us when our hearts are broken an especially powerful promise if you're in an abusive relationship right now darby strickland says to victims of oppression, God often feels far off. The intensity of their abuse leaves them feeling unheard and unhelped. We want people to know God's heart for them. As Christians who walk alongside the abused, we can serve as his hands and feet. We cannot let the focus of our interactions with them be on us. We need to feature Jesus. 
Jesus is the physical flesh and blood evidence of God's love for us. The more the oppressed see of Jesus, the more God's love for them will set them free. Oppressed believer, your helper is not far. Though he is in heaven, he is interceding for you. The Spirit of Christ is in you. Which means Jesus is present with you in your troubles. Though the details of your situation right now may be scary, he will never leave you nor forsake you. You will not be condemned fully and finally. Let's finish with a word from Spurgeon. Believer, thou shalt never be deserted, forsaken given up to ruin. God, even thy God, is thy guardian and friend. And bliss is thine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is extremely hard to think clearly when we're going through such troubling waters. But Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for your voice that booms and calls us home. Calls us into the protection under the shadow of your wings. We pray right now for those who are silently, secretly suffering from some sort of oppression or abuse. Lord, we do ask that you would bring them out liberate them, set them free, that your word would work in such a way that they could come and ask for help, and Lord, that you would ordain many people in their life to rescue them, deliver them from those evils. Lord, for those who are part of this church and want to help those around us who we know are suffering from abuse, may we incline our heart to wisdom in your word. May we seek to grow in our understanding of you, in our understanding of how to help. And Lord, may we be a church here that helps those who need our help. In Jesus' name.